Shalom Aleichem, Erev Tov to you wherever you are in the world right now. We are continuing in the introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin to his Keter Shem Tov Volume 3. The last two weeks we focused on a theme in which we find Maran HaShulchan Aruch ruling Halakha according to the rabbis of the Talmud, being loyal to traditional Jewish understanding of Halakha, and the Ramah being not just innovative, but very often lenient, more lenient or permissive than that which the law actually allows for. Uh, we did Shulchan Aruch O'Achayim, we covered Shulchan Aruch We are now going to find ourselves in Shulchan Aruch Eben Ha'ezer. And touching a little bit on the introduction to Chosh Mishpat, but Chosh Mishpat, God willing, we will leave until next week, B'zal Hashem. For right now, I am in the Roman numerals on page 27, which would be 25 in your PDF of the Ketar Shem Tov, and that will be found in the link that I posted in the chat box. In the middle of the page, Rabbi Shem Tov again is going to bring up two points, which actually might be relevant to the parashiyot that we're reading right now in the book of Bereshit, and I'm sure there's questions that come up every year and every place, about the different, the different things that we read about in the Torah that maybe don't really fit with our model of marriage and divorce and children and other things that we're familiar with here in the West. The first halakha that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin wants to point out, it actually comes later than the second one, but let's start there, that's where he starts. If you see in the middle of the page, it says, Sham, Siman Kuf Nun Zayin Seif Dalet. Look in Evan Haizer. 157, Halakha 4. Linyan Let's talk about Yivama for a moment. What is a Yivama? Someone walk me through the laws of Yibum. Briefly, nothing complicated. If, um, if I uh, love my woman and I uh, cheat on her, then I have to his brother, his oldest, I think my oldest brother in the family, um, and she would marry him, and then the first child that they would have would be considered the dead brother's child, not the last brother's child. I guess to continue his line, um, to continue his his particular family tree branch. I guess. Very good. So if a woman is married to a man, and they don't have children together, and this man dies. She becomes a Yivama, means she has an obligation to marry the brother of her husband, the deceased husband, so that his family name can continue, whatever else you mention is correct. And this situation of Yibum, which is practiced in Sephardic communities, or maybe not anymore as it, as it used to be, but has been replaced in Ashkenazi communities almost exclusively, by always performing chalitza. What is chalitza? Unusual pesukim in the Torah. Someone walk me. I once saw chalitza in my life in a bedin. One of the most unusual things I've ever seen in my life. Someone tell me what happens in chalitza. What is chalitza? It's, it's, when the, uh, it's, when the, it's when the woman doesn't want to marry the man. Uh, no, when the man doesn't want to marry the woman, sorry. Um, they get to bed in, and for bed in, he, 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 off the top of my head, he, you know, he, he makes this whole, this whole ritual, uh, he puts in a sandal on his foot, she takes off the sandal, I think she, she spits, and she says, 
this is what happens to the man that doesn't want to continue uh, down the line of his brother, his family, his brother's name in Israel. Um, and that is the process that would then now free her from being a Yivama, and she would now be free to marry whoever she wants. Correct. And so that's a wonderful explanation. And therefore, in Ashkenazi communities that do chalitza, really yibum never becomes a thing. They opt out of the mitzvah of yibum and can constantly do chalitza, which seems to be the general practice in many of the ideas around the world, which I'm not coming to discuss today, whether we should do yibum or should do chalitza, or should adopt one standard. Rabbi Uziel wanted to perhaps give up on yibum in order to unite everyone around chalitza because of Rav Kook. That led to attacks from Rabbi Wadi Yosef, Adam Shalom, who claimed Rav Uziel was a sellout to Rav Kook, and that led to a very interesting conversation in rabbinic circles. Not for right now. For right now, the halakha is focusing on is a halakha about Yibum, which was found in Siman Kuf Nun Zayin Siv Dalet. Linyan Mumar. There's a lady. She is married to a man. He passes away, and the brother who is remaining to marry her is a Mumar. What is a Mumar? Give me a loose definition of a Mumar. It doesn't have to be exact. Uh, not, it's not religion, no? Yeah, he's a heretic. He doesn't believe in the Torah. He doesn't believe in Torah mitzvot. Puma uh, could also be somebody who converts out to another faith, possibly. There's obviously a pikoros, there's a kofel, there's a mumar. Not all these categories are exactly the same. Let's just say mumar from now on. So this is a man who's not really within the Jewish fold. The Ramah suggests a radical idea that someone can make a special type of tonight, a special type of double condition here, in which she marries her husband only on condition that if he dies childless, she does not have an obligation to marry the brother who is a mumar. Ramah mentions this. Umaran Bebet Yosef Katav, Maran Bebet Yosef writes, Yishtaka hadavar v'lo yamer. This matter should just be completely forgotten and never spoken about again. It means entirely incorrect. Now you should know in the Bet Yosef that I have, and I'm going to show you just a moment, in the Bet Yosef that's in front of me, the last two words, do not they're not found there. But it, it's very possible that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin got either had a different edition, or he was borrowing language from another place in Shulchan Aruch, and Yoreh Da'a Kuf Dalet, Maran says this word, but, but we are... We're going to look at this inside for just a moment. It's an area of halakha which most of us are probably not so proficient in. This is not my area of halakha per se. So I'm just going to walk you through a few different sources in there. If you go to the Zoom invitation, you will see that there's a link to my source sheet, Expanding Horizons Evan Ha'ezel on Safaria. Please click that source sheet. We're going to be using it heavily today. So Maran writes to Chalahuch, Mi sheyesh lo ach ma'aviv, afilu hu mamzer o oved avodat kochavim. Somebody who has a brother from his father, even if he's a mamzer, an illegitimate child, or he's an idol worshiper. Vafilu hu katan, even if he's a child, a minor. 
משיצר ראשו ורובו לאוויר העולם קודם שימות אחיו, if the majority of his body was born, which is a very technical definition, before his brother dies, הרי זה זוקק. This man causes the wife of the brother, זוקק את אשתו ליבום, it causes the wife to become connected to him in יבום. אפילו הוא גוסס או פצוע מכות שאינו יכול לחיות מהם. Even if he's terribly injured or he's on his deathbed and he's not able to live for very long. לא תנסה כל זמן שהוא חי, ששנה תגן מריד so long as he's alive. אבל הוא אחיו מאמו, שנולד אחר מותו, יבמתו מותרת השוק. But if he's a maternal brother, or he was born after his brother died, then she is free to anyone that she chooses. וכן אם היה לו אח מהשפחה או מהנוכרית אינו זוקק את אשתו אף על פי שהייתה לדעתו בקדושה הואיל והורתו הייתה שלא בקדושה. This is an interesting section connected to גרים, not relevant right now for us. There are other people that are not exactly connected to יבום. But here what do you see? If the brother is even an idol worshiper, then here there would be an obligation of יבום. Nobody's telling you it's a good idea for her to marry an idol worshiper, but there's no exemption of Yibum just because the brother is an idol worshiper. Now skip four halachot down, so that's halacha two. Maran writes, if she falls into the lot of a Yabam, who's a Mumar, like we mentioned above, there's somebody who says that she is free. אם היה מומר כשנשא אחיו ואין לסמוך עליו. If he was a מומר when the brother was married, ואין לסמוך עליו. And you should not rely on this opinion. So Maran is quoting an opinion, but what's the purpose of quoting this opinion? Very good. To tell you that you cannot follow it. So Maran is intentionally not ignoring this opinion. He's quoting this opinion only to tell you that it's prohibited to follow it. says the Ramai, Mihu, nonetheless, Im avra v'niset b'lo chalitza, ki lo yada'a shayel al-yabam, v'achak m'lodah sh'yesh al-yabam, m'umar lo t'etze. If she got married to somebody else, because she had no idea that she even had a brother from that side of the family, and then we find out she has a brother, and that he has a brother, and then we find out that he's a m'umar, she doesn't have to divorce her second husband. And at the bottom he writes, והמקדש אישה, someone who marries a wife, ויש לו אח מומר, and he has a brother who is a מומר, יכול לקדש להתנות בתנאי כפול שאם תיפול לפני מומר לי הבאה משלו תהיה מקודשת. He can make a special type of clause in his כתומה, that says, that my wife is marrying me, unless I die before I have children, in which case, she'll have to marry my brother who is a מומר, In order for that not to happen, my kiddushin, my marriage, is only on the basis that this will never happen. If I die, and she has to marry him, my kiddushin retroactively shouldn't even be considered a marriage. So she's entirely an unmarried lady, and we were just living together. You understand this, how this works? I mean, he's saying now, if I die, my marriage is not really a marriage. You should know there were many... Solutions given to what they call today the Aguna crisis. 
And here you see rabbinic creativity in Ashkenaz, which is clearly blatantly violating halakha, but just for the moment. You see that they were not afraid to help out a woman from getting stuck with a guy who converted to another faith. So what happened now, all of a sudden, the ladies that are actually stuck and they're, they're miserable for years and years and years and years? There were solutions. Rabbis didn't like the solutions. I agree. Fine, you don't like those solutions. Come up with better ones. But you can't ignore the parasha entirely. You can't just say, the problem is not a problem. We don't want to deal with this problem. We, we don't have the ability to deal with it. We don't care about dealing with this problem. Those are all uh, excuses. Instead of dealing with an actual problem. Now I will say, there's more to that guna problem than solving the text of a ketubah or trying to figure out a way to absolve a marriage retroactively. There's a fundamental issue in the way the Jewish community operates and the way Bateddin don't function anymore. And those are fundamental issues that we'll need to fix if we ever wish for people to feel safe relying on Jewish legal texts with a broken Jewish legal system. But the topic of Agunot is... It's, it's, not, it's not for today. I would love to talk to you about it. I just, today is not the right day for that. Before we get into the Bet Yosef, I want to just clarify here. Maran quotes the opinion that the Ramah is talking about, and he says, you just can't do it. It doesn't work. It doesn't make a difference. Who cares that the brothers of Mumau? She's still required uh, to go through a process of Yibul. Maran, obviously, his Shulchan Aruch is a summary of the halachot that he has in the Bet Yosef. Bet Yosef is a commentary on on the tool. Right? The tool he wrote really the first Shulchan Aruch, and Maran wrote a commentary the Bet Yosef. The Ramah wrote a commentary called Darchei Moshe. Darchei Moshe. And the Bet Yosef ultimately becomes Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. So, let's read. By the way, there is a place where a Mumar makes a difference in Halakha. Look in Halakha 3. A Yivamah who is obligated to do Yibum with one of two brothers. There's two brothers left over. And the first one is an Anus. I'm not sure what Maran is saying, Anusim, if it's like the Anusim of Spain, or just, he's one of the people who forfeited his faith because of whatever is going on in any generation. Vashini Yehudi. And the second one is a kosher Jew. Ha-Yehudi kodem nachalotz. The elder goes ahead and he frees her. The, the Jewish one goes and frees her. Vim kadam ha-acher and if the other one did Khalita, she's free. And Ramah says again, look what was written in Siv Dalit regarding my opinion that a Mumar doesn't need Khalita in the first place. The tool, he quotes this halakha before Maran. And let's say halfway down the tool, he says, Katab Rav Shreer Agon. Rav Shreer Agon writes in the middle of that big paragraph. Nafla lifnei mumar. He she falls into the seika in the in, into the yibum of a mumar. Skukali abem. Umit agna ad chalitzla. She's required to go through yibum. That's the law, and she's stuck. She's really an aguna. 
until he's willing to do chalitza for her. The Rav Yehuda Kedav and Rav Yehuda says, That if she, when she got married, the husband's brother was already a mumar, she doesn't require chalitza. Okay, this is already something else. And then says here, the two, Says, I don't know why that makes a difference here. It says, but I don't understand why a person being a mumar exempts somebody from Yibum. If you look down into the Bet Yosef, the Bet Yosef quotes this in the entire in section 5, and he's quoting the different opinions back and forth about Yibum. And he says, Go down almost towards the last third of it. The Rashba is bewildered with this opinion of Rav Yudah that a Mumar exempts one from doing Yibum. That if a person has a brother who's an idol worshiper, he's still required to do Yibum. So, why should a brother who's a Mumar? be any different in that case. says, really, this doesn't make much sense. But then he continues in the next section, section 6. That which the Rabbeinu Hatur, he says, For sure he's correct, that's the truth of the matter. That a wife of a mumar for sure requires Yibum. Even if he does Kiddushin, after he gives him, so listen to this. There's a guy, he converts out of the Jewish faith. And then he marries a Jewish wife. That wedding is still a valid wedding. He's still Jewish enough for his Kiddushin to work. And he goes again through an Arichut. And at the end here, he's bewildered entirely how this opinion could even exist. Look in Halakha 7. Says that which Rabbeinu Atul doesn't understand what difference does it make when he became Mumar, which time he became Mumar. He goes again through a lengthy conversation. And towards the end of this, he writes the following words. Uh, look, in, somewhere in the middle here, there's a colon. It says, Siman Kufnun Tet. There's a colon, and it says, some, by a brother who's a mumar, they put a t'nai in the kiddushin, that's what the Ramah was quoting, a condition in the ketubah, that says that she won't be married. And one requires analysis in this matter. Because it doesn't seem that that could work. It doesn't seem that according to our Talmud, that this can actually work. And says Maran towards the end, this is like the last five lines of that Bet Yosef in seven. I am so astonished, bewildered, troubled by this. In our Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, there is no leniency for skipping Yibum with a Mumar or making such an exception in the Ketubah. And the Jerusalem Talmud says explicitly that this is prohibited. 
How can you be lenient about something that is prohibited? He says, and I, this matter should be completely forgotten. We have never seen and we have never heard anybody who allowed someone to do this, the halakha. So back to our book. Rishem Dovgagin tells us that here is a matter that has to do with marriage and divorce. Nibum and Chalitza. The Torah is clear, the Talmud is clear, and along comes the Ramah, and he relies on an opinion that is so vague, by the way. There's interesting, maybe I'll, I'll read you one more section. I, I don't want to skip it. Let me just see if I can find it for you. This is a different edition of the tour than I regularly have in front of my face. I apologize, it's in front of me, but I can't. Here. If you look in section 6 in the Bet Yosef, um, I'm going to try to find you the place where you could start reading it. Maran says something interesting. And this is something that is relevant to our generation when all kinds of proclamations come out from all kinds of rabbis about all kinds of things. Says Maran, It should surprise anybody. That anybody can even allow a leniency in such a matter. And I don't have any questions or any critiques on Rabbi Yehuda that this was written in his name. Why don't I have any critiques about it? Because it was written in his name. Because we know that his eyes were full of light. Maran is speaking, Maran is speaking, literally. Maran is speaking in a language that is very kind. What does it mean, his eyes were full of light? He was blind. He wasn't able to see. Or at least not well. And sometimes his students used to write things in his name that he never would have fathomed writing down. He says, so I have a question, not in review that, because maybe he never said this. I'm bewildered that the students wrote this down. And I'm even more perplexed at the Baal that he copied their words, says Maran, instead of chasing them down and erasing these words, he chose to copy these words as if it's some type of authoritative legal position. Here, Maran is telling you that you don't have to even blame, it's not that Rabbi Yudah is wrong, he made up an opinion, perhaps his opinion is not even an opinion, it has no basis in Talmudic literature, and you definitely should not rely on this opinion in the halakha. The fact that the Ramah is willing to say, well, it's a minority opinion, we can rely on this minority opinion when we need to, goes against everything that people say about the Ramah, 
and definitely shows you that in a matter that is as serious as marriage, divorce, yibum al-chalita, that the Rama is extremely lenient, and that that is the custom. What did he write? This is the custom in the place where we are, that we are not careful about this halakha. That's example number one from Evan Hazel. Example number two might be a little more disturbing. I don't want anyone to be offended from it. Allow me to read it and explain it, and hopefully after explaining it, there'll be a little more clarity. Whether you like it or not, I can't help, but at least a little bit of clarity in what is that halakha. So go with me to the next source. And that is on my Expanding Horizon source sheet. And it should be source 9. Okay, so source 9 in, that, in the source sheet. Over here we're going to be talking about a halakha that is sensitive. I was debating whether it should be recorded or not. I don't want to make Chilu Hashem anywhere, but I trust everybody here. So please do with it whatever you will. In Halakha 9. The Rambam writes in the Mishneh Torah, Ha'av mekadesh bito shalom ledata kol zaman shiketana. A father can marry off his daughter, though she has no ability to give consent, so long as she is a minor. Then even when she gets a little bit older than that, he's able to marry her off. He is able, essentially, all of her possessions, her ktubah, her divorce, all of that is his until she gets old enough to stand on her own. A father is able, therefore, to accept marriage on behalf of his daughter from the day that she's born until she gets older. Even if she was deaf or she was a shota, she was mentally not sound. And the father marries her off. She's completely a married lady. And from the age of three years and one day, technically, she's able to be married by actually consummating that marriage through a sexual act. But less than that, it wouldn't work. This halakha obviously raises deep questions in us about the ability of a father to make decisions for a daughter, especially one that is unable to make decisions for herself. More than that, even if a daughter was able to make decisions for herself, then it leads to difficult conversations regarding age of consent, marriage, at what age. These are talking about minors, minors that are clearly being married to somebody that is able to have sexual relations and the like. I don't want to get to today conversations surrounding why Chachamim don't necessarily have laws in play about underage minors, which age, which, you know, there are things that in our world we are much more sensitive to. I'm not saying fault in the eyes of Chachamim, rather 
before you jump on me for the halacha of the Rambam, let's read these halachot in their entirety, and I think it might shed some light on what all of us are feeling. Ibn Ha'ezer, Maran writes very similarly. In fact, it's almost word for word. Let's look at Halakha 11. The Gemara is the source for all of this. The Gemara Masech Kiddushin teaches, it's a Mishnah really, Ha'ish mekadesh bitok shi na'arak shi na'ara en kishi k'tana lo mesaya leil rav da'ama rabi yudah marav v'itema rabi ilazar asur la'adam shi kadesh bitok shi k'tana ad shetigdal v'tomar b'floni ani rotza. A man can marry his daughter off when she's a young woman. But then there's a statement of our rabbis that says, Asur Adam, it's forbidden for a man. She kadeshed bito, to marry off his daughter. Kishahi ketana, while she's a minor. until she's old enough to say, V'tomar bifloni anirotza, that I want to marry this man. What's happening here? Is it permitted to marry off a minor, or it's prohibited to marry off a minor? It's yeah, it's not allowed. It's allowed or not allowed? I think it's allowed. That's what it says in the beginning. No, a man can marry off his daughter. Can it be that from a financial transaction, it would be considered legally binding, but from an ethical position, it wouldn't be correct? You're saying there's something more ethical than. It's up until the point where she can make up her mind. Let's look at the next halakha in the Rambam. He'll clarify the seemingly contradictory Gemara. Says the Rambam Mishneh Torah, the laws of marriage, chapter 3. Mitzvah she kadesh adam tishto ba'atzmo yuter manideh shlucho. It is better for a person like most mitzvot that you should do the act of the mitzvah as the, instead of uh, um, delegating it to somebody else. So you can technically send a ketubah, a ring, a witness, someone to, to do the act of marriage, not actual marriage, but the marriage uh, to marry someone for you, but it's better that you should do it on your own. And the same thing is true, it's better for a woman to get married directly and not by proxy. And even though, according to the Torah, a man has permission to marry off his minor daughter, and when she's a when she's a young lady, also to whoever he wants, it's not the right thing to do that, says the Rambam. Our rabbis added a mitzvah. Our rabbis commanded us. That a man should not marry off his daughter when she's a minor. Ad here he says, until she gets older. And she should say, I want to marry this man. So what happened right now? The Torah says that a man has the ability to marry off his minor daughter. What do Chachamim say? It's better not to do that. It's not the, more than it's better not to, it's not the right thing. It's not the right thing that a man should do that to his daughter. You have to wait until the age in which she can pick her own spouse. And then there's a flip halakha here. 
Our rabbis also warn a man against it being, it's improper for a man to marry a young girl. It's not the right thing to do. And then there's another halacha. A man should not, sorry to the fiddler on the roof, a man should not marry a woman until he sees her. And she should be fitting in his eyes. Because if you just arrange a marriage and two people get married under the chuppah, he'll end up divorcing her at the very least. I, mean, I don't know which is worse, actually. He'll, he'll be married to her and he'll live with her while he hates her, despises her. And that's not a good outcome. Therefore, Chachamim added a few halachot here as safeguards to everybody in this marriage. One, the father, though he may, should not marry off a minor who's, a, who's his daughter. She shouldn't do it. They should wait until the age in which she's able to choose a spouse. Halacha number two, a man should not marry someone who is a minor even though the Torah technically allows for such a marriage. Three, the third halacha, is that a man should not marry a woman unless he knows her and is willing to marry her, wants to marry her. Because arranging such a marriage could lead either to divorce or to a relationship in which two people suffer tremendously inside of it. It's at this point that I tell you that there's a reason that we are Pharisees, we are rabbinic Jews. What did Paul say? In the New Testament, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I am a Benjamite, the son of a Benjamite. Yeah, we're also proud to be Pharisees. I think very often in the Jewish world, oh, those rabbis, those rabbis, the rabbis, they're, they're, everyone hates the rabbis. The people understand, Chachmei Israel are the ones that came to us with a Torah that is beautiful. A Torah that says, listen, technically you could do all kinds of things. We don't want it to happen. You can imagine if an action is severely discouraged by the rabbinic establishment. You're not going to be able to walk into their bedin and marry a two-year-old. It's just not going to work that way. Technically, would a marriage work if somebody had done it in a renegade fashion in the backyard? Yeah, it would work. It would, it would be chal. But our rabbis were absolutely against it. And therefore, they created a Jewish society in which you never heard of such things. But it's an intentional improvement that our rabbis added here. Maran rules this halakha in Ibn Ha'ezer. Mitzvah shaloi kadesh bito. He says it a little differently. He says it's a mitzvah. A mitzvah. For a man not to marry off his daughter while she's a minor, until she grows older, and she says, I want to marry this guy. That's number 13 in the Sorshi. What does the Ramah say? Ramah says, Some say, that nowadays we have a custom, yes, to marry off our minor daughters. But Ketanot, you're talking about three years old. Maybe even under. And that's our custom. Mishum begalut, Because we are in exile. What does being in exile have to do with marrying off your daughters at the age of three, four, five, six?
And also, not necessarily did the people who did it necessarily like live together. Okay, you meant people, grandparents who you know, his grandmothers and grandfathers were this way that the parents married them off when they were young children, but they didn't necessarily like live together. It was like a marriage on paper until they got old enough. It was more of a legal remedy for them to avoid a worse outcome. Okay, so you're mentioning, for example, what was common in Yemen. I'll give you an example in Yemen by the Muslims. They were able to take, especially orphans, children who didn't have parents to protect them, they would simply see them, take them as a wife off the street, and, and convert them to Islam. A way around that was that in the Muslim world, they're very careful only to kidnap children that are not married. You know, if the children are married, they don't kidnap them as readily. And so because of that, uh, our rabbis in Yemen, for example, agreed that certain children, especially those who were orphans, this is a specific scenario, should get married or at least spoken for at a very young age. Though they never lived together, they probably didn't even see each other or know each other. Haikal was, you could say, this girl is already ready to get married or she has already been married. Which leads to the second part of this conversation, which is even among the, the cases in which a man could marry a minor. But you know, it could work the other way around too. There are other such halakhot. There Chachamim tell us, just like an old man should marry a young woman, an old woman shouldn't marry a young man. Now, what is old and young? It's a great question. I'm sure all of you are familiar with people who have some type of age gap. Our Chachamim are not saying you can't marry somebody a few years younger than you or older than you. Uh, Chachamim, we're, we're concerned about exactly what it is that we're talking about here. Uh, even in relationships, that marriages that started off that way, it was not a sexual relationship at the time in which a person was a minor. This was a relationship in which somebody says, we're married, I'm now transferring care of this child from their parents to me, to my home, to my place. And I'll explain in just a moment why that happens. The Ramah is going to tell us, not because of Muslims or because of the neighbors, something very fascinating. We marry off our minor daughters because we're in exile. Because we don't have enough money to pay the dowry. It's famous that in years gone by, to get married, you had to pay a lot of money. In Yemen, where my grandfather got married, he had to pay a lot of money to marry my grandmother. But in Ashkenaz, oftentimes that worked the other way around. It seems to me that in very traditional Ashkenazi circles, this is still the case. It's on the girl's family to provide a significant amount of money to cover the marriage that is between her and the young man. So if you want to imagine in, in classic Haredi models in Israel that still toe this line, it is an expected thing that the mother and father of the bride will not just pay for a wedding and furniture and all of those things, but will buy them an apartment and will su- su- expect to support them for the first three, five, six, ten years in Kola. Rabbanit, correct me at any point if I'm incorrect. No, you should have married somebody Haredi. That way you could have had an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I aimed, I, I aimed for the most fanatical element of that society, but it didn't work to my liking. So in any case, <laughs> and this, this situation was one of, we're not going to have enough money to pay the dowry if we wait until she's old enough to get married. There's too much pressure in Ashkenaz, too much financial pressure to be able to marry off our children don't you know might find this to be difficult to believe 
My wife and I know some very talented young women, and mo mostly in the East Coast and the Haredi community there, who are simply unable not to get married, but they're unable even to get a call back from the Shadchan or the Shadchanit because their parents don't make enough money. You don't have enough money to get married. In this way, I once told someone that the non-Jewish world, or perhaps the non-observant Jewish world, is light years ahead of the Orthodox Jewish community in this regard. You know, you, you read about the princess in Japan marrying some kind of peasant that she can't marry. I don't think he's really a peasant, obviously, but uh, this is, she's not allowed to do such a thing. You can't, two people can't just meet and get married. Uh, but in the world at large, you could be the CEO of a company and walk into a bar and meet some guy over there at the counter and he's the bartender or whatever it is, and those two people get married. Why? Because they decided they wanted to get married. Because those two people decided, hey, I want to marry you, you want to marry me, Shalom, shalom on Israel, I don't, Shalom on Ishmael. But this is something that uh, two people can decide they want to do. In the world in which you don't have enough money to even be given a date, because your parents can't buy him an apartment because they can't even buy themselves an apartment. So then don't expect to get married. Just expect to be single or we'll find you some guy who's 40 years, I'm not exaggerating, 40 years older than you, divorced with four kids and maybe you can marry him. Because he already has an apartment from the first marriage. It's, a, it's an ugly thing. I didn't come to speak today about the shidduch crisis either. But this issue is something that's not new in the Ashkenazi community at least. The Ramah is saying we know that if we wait for our daughter to get older, we won't have enough money for a dowry. So anybody who'll take her now, you want to take my daughter? Take her, because I won't be able to afford marrying her off later. At least she'll be in good hands. He gives a second reason. Our community is so few in number. This is in a time where Ashkenazi Jews were not necessarily the majority of the Jewish community like it is today. There was a time where the numbers were, were swapped. Because there are so few of us Ashkenazi Jews. Then Motsim Tamid Zivugagun. That we can't always find a person, a spouse, that is fitting for us. And therefore, and that is the custom in Ashkenaz to marry off our daughters at a very, very, very young age. Very, meaning one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it amazes me every single time I hear rabbis today in contemporary orthodoxy of whichever flavor you subscribe to. Talk about, oh, in Sephardic countries, people got married so young, and da 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 This is an explicit Ramah in the Shulchan Aruch, that minors, two, three, four, five-year-olds were being married off, because there was no choice. Because maybe we'll never find a guy for them. Or if we'll find a guy, we won't be able to afford it. And this is against, mamash, against the words of our rabbis. Our rabbis do not allow for such a thing. Mitzvah shaloi kadesh bitok shiktana. Maran says, mitzvah for us not to marry off our daughters when they're small. Until they're able to choose a spouse for themselves. I want to read to you from the Pnei Halakha. And I have my reservations about the Pnei Halakha. I happen to think that Rabbi Eliezer Melamed is a tremendous Tamikhan. I respect a lot of what he's actually done recently in the world, where most people are now burning his books and trying to get rid of them. If you're familiar with the crisis that's going on in his life right now, um, and his openness to trying to help the reform and conservative movements find common ground with orthodoxy in Israel, which I find to be a blessed endeavor. You may agree or disagree with methods, I do as well. But uh, Tamir Khan is choosing to make strides. Uh, he's allowed to do that. He has the authority to do that as Tamir Khan. Nonetheless, I'm not exactly from the Bet of the Pnei Halakha, but I 
I think he did a very, very good job at explaining the situation here. And Baruch Hashem, today, the books of Pnei Achaf, he offers them in English, uh, Hebrew and English, and they're free online, so even if you can't afford to buy them, you can read them on Safari. Uh, let's just click on the source, and, and if we can actually go to that, I'm wondering if we could, is there a way to open up the source from a source sheet? Just click on the just click on the title. On the title, thank you. Um, it doesn't work for me on an iPad. Okay, let me read to you what he writes in English here. In times of dire poverty, many families were forced to marry off their daughters while they were still girls in order to ensure their future, to make sure they would not go hungry, and so they would have the privilege of raising a family. Therefore, the Torah permitted a father to marry off his daughter while she was still a minor under the age of 12. However, when there was no existential need to marry off minors, the sages prohibited doing so, saying, A man may not marry off his daughter while she is still young. Rather, he must wait until she has matured and is able to say, I choose this one. It's clear that Rabbi Shantov Gagin does not understand this the way Rabbi Ezra Malama does. And he doesn't view Chachamim saying, Don't marry off your daughter when she's a minor, as saying, When there's no existential need, you don't marry her off. But when there is, you can. It seems that he is understanding it differently. But the footnote on this halakha is even more interesting. Um, more, tell me how you said I get there. I click on this. Forgive me, guys. I'm not the... Click on, click on where it says, 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 where Guys, does it work for you? Yeah, it works for me. Okay, if it works for you, then call it a vote. So if you look in the footnote there, I think it's footnote number nine. It's like an italics towards the end of the that paragraph. Do you see what I'm reading from? At first glance. At first glance, this halakha seems self-contradictory. On one hand, the Torah allows a father to marry off his daughter from the moment she is born until she reaches adulthood. With his acceptance of kiddushin money from the groom, who must be at least 13 years old, she becomes a wife. On the other hand, the sages state a man may not marry off his daughter while she is still young, rather he must wait until she has matured and is able to say, I choose this one. In order to understand this halakha, we must be aware that until recently, earning a living generally involved working at hard physical labor all day. You have to understand, this is Pnei Halakha trying to explain a halakha. So you can accept or not accept, I just want to read to you his explanation. Therefore, women were existentially dependent on men. When times were difficult, a young woman's parents would need to provide a large dowry so that a man would agree to marry her and commit to providing for her. That's exactly the opposite of how it happened in most Sephardic countries. If they did not do so, they had reason to fear that their daughter would remain alone without a husband, children, or income. Sometimes, when the parents received a marriage proposal from an upright man, from a good family, they would hasten to marry off their daughter to him even while she was still a minor, while they still had money for a dowry. They were afraid that if she waited until she was grown, they would be unable to find her a decent husband or provide her with a suitable dowry. Sometimes, when the parents' financial situation was dire, 
The only way left for them to save their daughter from starvation and to secure her future was to marry her off young to a successful man. You're talking about European Jewish families who are unable to feed their family. They don't have food to bring home to their children. Someone is saying, let me take your child in. I'll take them in. I'll feed them. I'll clothe them. I'll take care of them. I'll take a load of this panasa off your back. Therefore, the Torah permitted a father to marry off his minor daughter. This explanation is offered by Tosafot. Yeah, let's just be aware that this comes from France and Germany, and do with that information what you wish. Stating 800 years ago, quote, Because each and every day the exile worsens. If a man has the ability to provide his daughter with a dowry now, he should do so because he may not have the means to do so later, and his daughter will remain alone forever. Understand the calculation here. It's Tosafot's calculation that it's better to marry off your three-year-old to a 13-year-old than to let her be single forever. Which, being single forever, by the way, is like the worst curse you can bestow on any Jewish mother in the world. Right? This is essentially the biggest fear that they have. And, and all the, you know, they say that once there was a guy, that every time he'd go to a family wedding, his aunts and uncles would come by and say, And he just kept so annoyed. Every time he came, they're still wondering why he's not married, why he's not married. They're all blessing him. Soon he should get married also. Finally, he tells his cousin, you know, I'm not coming to these events anymore. I don't want to be here. I can't handle the pressure. It's too much. I'm happy being single. I'm not looking to get married. And he stopped coming to family events. Maybe five years passed. And he starts showing up at every event. Bar mitzvahs, weddings. And not only does he show up, but nobody tells him anything. Nobody bothers him. No pressure. It's like somehow the guy has managed to get everybody off his back. So his younger cousin says, listen, tell me what was the secret. What did he do? said, you remember Aunt, uh, Aunt Irma and Uncle Bernie? He said, yeah, by the last funeral we were at in the family, I went over and I told them, and ever since then they left me alone. This, uh, this teaching here of Tosavot is a fear. It's a fear of being left single. And they don't want it to happen. Sometimes parents married their daughter off as a minor because their community was very small. And if the father did not accept a viable son-in-law when he was available, he might get snapped up by someone else. That's Rabbeinu Peretz's notes on the smak. Similarly, if he does not seize the opportunity, he may not have another chance. That's Rabbeinu Tzafat, again, French-German rabbis. If a father died, the sages ordained that in order to ensure a minor daughter's well-being, her mother and brother can marry her off. However, since such a marriage does not have the status of a Torah marriage, if the minor wants to leave the husband they chose for her, she may say before two witnesses that she refuses to be married to him, and this dissolves their union. Based on her refusal, a certificate of repudiation, shtar mi'un, is drawn up. However, if she has not rejected him by the time she turns 12 and exhibits signs of puberty, she has become his full-fledged wife and wants to leave him, they require an actual halachic divorce. Nevertheless, when it was not absolutely necessary to marry off a minor in order to ensure her well-being, the sages directed that even a poor man should not marry off his minor daughter without her wholehearted consent. Only when a girl was close to puberty, if she wished to marry a particular person, then it was a mitzvah for her father to marry her off with him. Now you have to remember, you're talking about 11 years old, 12 years old, in a world where people live till 25, 30, 35. Uh, my grandparents who were not orphans or anything else in Yemen got married at 13 and 15. By 15 and 17, they were living in Israel. That wasn't considered an unusual age to be married. That was when everybody got married. We could talk for in a minute how that life looks, but for one second. If she was not interested in getting married yet, they would wait until she was. 
In general, the sages said that girls should be encouraged to marry early as soon as possible after puberty so as to avoid delaying the fulfillment of the mitzvah of procreation. Additionally, doing so would protect her from the evil inclinations and enticements to act promiscuously. As it says, do not degrade your heart, daughter and make her a harlot. On which Rabbi Akiva commented, this refers to a man who delays marrying off his adult daughter. When such marriages were made due to financial necessity, then even though the bride did not choose the groom, there was no shame in it. Many such marriages were happy and resulted in a thriving family life. But all of this is explanation. You could even argue apologetics. I'm not telling you this is the commentary on the sugya. The relationship would evolve. At first, the husband's attitude to his young wife would be paternal. As she grew up and developed her identity, they would become peers. As their connection deepened, she would become as a mother to him, taking care of all of his emotional needs. The sages used this development as an allegory to describe Hashem's relationship with the Jewish people in Shemot Rabban. We must add that the sages instructed the husband of a minor to refrain from sexual relations until his wife reached puberty. The man who has sexual relations with a minor, even his wife, is deemed a child molester. The sages say that such a person prevents the arrival of the Mashiach, since the girl takes no pleasure in this, nor is she able to bear children. Okay, the last section was really meant for something else. If I can talk to, for a moment, the idea of getting married at a young age. So, I can tell you at least how it looked in Sfarad. I don't know elsewhere. In Sephardic countries, Jews lived in not just tight-knit communities, but tight-knit families. What it meant, tight-knit families? You know, in the West, I'm assuming in the United Kingdom, it's similar to the United States of America. And that is, people, they go off to college, they disappear, they get married, maybe they come back to visit their parents on Thanksgiving, on, on Christmas, on, I don't know, Hanukkah, whenever they decide they're going to come visit their parents. And then they pay money for them to be in an old age home, and they die, and they cry at their funeral, and how much time they wish they didn't spend with them, and all those things. That's not really the way this worked in the East. In the East, it was a very different model of relationship, and that was... First off, family units were that much closer. People lived together, not just together, but mamash together. So I'm thinking of Harab Peretz and his family's compound in Morocco. What does it mean? They have, imagine, uh, imagine this here. So there are houses all along the perimeter, and there's a shared courtyard in the middle of this perimeter. And let's say your parents live right here, and your uncles and aunts, they live here, and your grandparents live here. And there's a bunch of empty rooms, and the reason there's a bunch of empty rooms is because you cook outside in the courtyard and you play outside in the courtyard and you work and talk and gossip and peel vegetables outside in the courtyard. You really only sleep inside of the house, maybe study in a room inside of the house. But aside from that, everything is done in this very safe, enclosed area in the middle of the courtyard. And so what happens? You're old enough to get married. Who are you getting married to? The girl from the next compound? Your distant cousin who lives in this corner? So what do they do? You get married. How do you pay your mortgage? How do you pay your bills? How do you... They give you a room. They, they, this room over here, they used to store the potatoes in. Now it's your bedroom. They put a bed in there, close the door, and you have kids. Who's going to help? Child care. You, have a, uh, you send your kids in the morning to this courtyard. One day it's this aunt's job to watch the kids. One day it's that uncle's job to take care of the kids. One day it's, And the whole family is taking care of each other. It's, it's not so complicated in the olden days to do all of the things that a, you know, Rambam says that a person, smart people, they get a job, they buy a house, and then they get married. To stupid people, they first get married, then they get a job, and then they buy a house. That's wonderful when getting a house means a bedroom in your parents' house. Or that's wonderful when a, getting a house means putting up a shack, like a sukkah. You know, you use some wood, some straw, and you sleep in it. When, when buying a house means a million and a half dollars with a $500,000 deposit, that takes more than just a few days to put that together. You might spend until you, people don't buy a house their whole life. Or you can wait till you're 90 to get married. So things may have changed in the world, which is obviously affecting this conversation. But back to our 
initial halacha here. The Ramah says it's the custom in Ashkenaz to marry off daughters that are minors, which is against the will of Chazal. And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is saying, these are two areas that are very sensitive areas. Our Chachamim explicitly ruled against them. Yet somehow, somehow the Ramah has a way to get around it. And that bothers him very much. I was really going to get into two more examples today, but it's not worth rushing through it. So I'll tell you what next week will be. It will be a segue between Evan Hez and Choshul Mishpat. The topic of next week's shiur is going to be on the rabbinate, the Dayanut industry, the topic of whether or not rabbis are allowed to take money for providing the services that they do. And this is a fascinating topic because it was a war, a real war between the rabbis of Sepharad and the rabbis of Ashkenaz. The former not allowing acceptance of money at all for rabbinic duties like the law of the Talmud, and the latter, uh, if I say kindly, were very comfortable accepting payment for all of the jobs that were involved in the rabbinate. And there's an, there's an essential dispute between them. We're going to analyze the Mishnah, the Talmud, the commentaries on those, some latter-day sources, including a writing of Moriah Rav Yaakov Peretz, should live and be well, about this topic of whether or not one is considered corrupt in halakha if they are being paid to rule over those halakhot. And I think that a lot of this has to do with much of what we're dealing with at Shiviti, whether it's in the world of Kashrut or it's in the world of Giyu, you know, in a world in which the average cost of Giyu, at least in the United States, I don't know where how it is over there, out here, Giyu can range between $10,000, $20,000. If you're in a place like Arizona, I know someone who was quoted there $33,000 to convert to Judaism. If you're talking about kashrut and major organizations that won't even spit your direction unless you pay them X amount of money, $5,000, $10,000 to show up, you're dealing in a world in which money has become a primary focus of the rabbinic establishment. And I believe that the conversation next week will be relevant to all of us uh, because all of us in some way or another are affected by a rabbinic establishment that looks after their pockets and uh, whether it's correct or not is going to be a dispute, obviously, between Chachamei Svarad and Chachamei Ashkenaz, but that's what that paragraph is at the bottom of page 27 in the writings of Rabbi Shekhtov Gagin. God willing, we will get to that Bezad Hashem uh, together. I see that I brought here a few other sources from the Pernay Halakha, you're welcome to read them if you would like, uh, but right now it's not for our shiul. I have no idea why some of these are in the note. Until then, I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you for learning with me. I'm here to answer any questions. I'm sure this topic might bring up some feelings or emotions. Please feel free to stick around and talk. I'm here. If not, I wish everybody a wonderful evening. I'll see you, God willing, next week.